let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne this morning. Lord, we come to worship you again. We come to honor you. We come to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave us a full atonement, forgiveness of sins, completed salvation, perfect salvation, perfect justification. And Lord, we are of all people blessed because we know the way of peace with you. We know the way of life. And Lord, we have an imperishable hope in Christ Jesus, the solid rock on which we stand. And Lord, we pray that you would bring back your gospel into the church. That the church may know it only exists because of your son and the work that he did. And anything short of that, there's no church and there's no salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that you cause your people to come back to you. Give them the hearts to hear the things of the Spirit. Give them the understanding, Lord, that they may understand spiritual things. We pray and thank you, Lord, for yet another time that you have given us to go into your word and to learn about Jesus and how we can approach you and how we can approach Jesus in peace. Our Lord, I pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 4. We are in John chapter 4. And this happens to be our last sermon, our last teaching from this chapter. We have learned a lot of things, I hope we did, from the encounter of the Lord with the Samaritan woman and then the Samaritans. And the theology that the Lord gave us from that encounter. And now we come to the close of the chapter. We are coming to the close of the chapter and we're going to hear the Lord talking and saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. But also we are going to see the Lord healing the son of the royal official who was at the point of death. We're going to be drawing some theology from that story. So we are in John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, and this is what they read. After the two days, he, that is Jesus, went forth from there into Galilee, Jesus is leaving the land of the Samaritans. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, 
unless you people see signs and wonders, you will simply not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And he was now going down. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Our sermon will be titled, At the Point of Death. At the Point of Death, or Go, Your Son Lives. Or Go, Your Son Lives. Jesus has been with the Samaritans, those unclean, pagan, and despised people, The Samaritans have gladly received him and have urged Jesus to stay with them for two days. And during the time that they spent with Jesus, the Lord had taught them a number of things and they had believed his word. And the Samaritans had the testimony that He indeed is the savior of the world. And that is the most important statement in this chapter. That Christ is indeed the savior of the world. This is what John is teaching us. He wants us to know that Jesus is the savior of the world. And the whole book of John is dedicated to proving to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you have to have life, you have to believe in Him. So the Samaritans have believed and rejoiced to have Jesus, and they have made a true testimony and confession of His person and work as the Christ who serves the world. And so their individual and combined testimony was given in John 4, verse 42. And they said, It is no longer because of what you say that we believe, for we have had for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. But Jesus has to continue with this journey For he also has an appointment with the royal official in Galilee. Jesus has to go to Galilee because he has an appointment. He already knows if we know anything about the person of Jesus. If he has to pass through Samaria because he has an appointment with the Samaritans, he also has to go to Galilee 
Because he has an appointment there. It doesn't matter whether the people there know it or not. What matters is that Jesus knows that he has an appointment there. So this verse that we just read, verse 42, is a very important verse in building the understanding of the Lord's statement that's going to come in verse 48 when he meets with the Jews again in Galilee. It is supposed to give us a contrast between the Jews and the Samaritans. Most importantly, a contrast between saving faith and non-saving faith. And as the Lord continued on his journey to Galilee in the north, remember he's coming from Judea. Judea is in the south and Samaria is in between and Galilee is further north. So Galilee is his home country. Nazareth is in Galilee. And when he goes back to his home country, he has a different testimony from his own people. He has rejection. His people does not honor him. And he said of them, in verse 44, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is not a testimony of the Samaritans. This is a testimony of his own countrymen. Jesus was born in Nazareth in Galilee. And his people, the very ones that he came for, did not honor him as to believe his testimony that he was the Messiah. And this is in keeping with John's teaching of the Jews' rejection of Jesus in John 1 verse 11. In John 1 verse 11, Apostle John records for us and says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. That's what John records for us about the Galileans in verse 45. But the Galileans, in contrast to the Samaritans, received Jesus not in the same way as the Samaritans did. They received Jesus because they had seen all the things that Jesus had done at the feast in Jerusalem, if you still remember, in John chapter 2. They had seen Jesus demonstrating his power over turning the tables of the money changers. And according to Jesus, to receive Jesus that way, that is not a good way of receiving him. His countrymen apparently had enthusiasm for his miracles and not for the Jesus of the miracles. They thought him to be a magician, like Simon the magician in Acts 8. In Acts 8, we have a record of this magician, Simon. Acts 8, 9 to 11. It says, 
But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with these magic arts. So this is the level of testimony that the Jews have of Jesus. Unlike the Samaritans. The Galileans did not receive Jesus as the savior of the world, as their savior, but as a miracle worker of the same class as Simon the magician. They did not have faith in the person and work of Jesus as the Christ and Savior of the world. They despised him. They despised him as someone they knew who could not have been anything special. He was too familiar to them. Jesus was too familiar to his own people. To which we have a record of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, we have a record, an expanded record of the encounter that Jesus had with his own people in Nazareth. Here, Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So what do we see of the testimony of the Jews? They were amazed at his authority and wisdom with which he taught. But that did not cause them to love him. They hated him the more. And this happens all the time when sinners meet with someone better than them. They have to find a way to degrade them. They have to find a way to despise them below their level so that they can feel good about themselves. And if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to all his true people. But listen to the disparaging questions. Listen to the disparaging questions that they raised about Jesus. They said, where did this man get these things? 
in their own estimation, he should not be saying all these things. What is this wisdom given to him? What is he talking about? They can acknowledge that there's something about him, but they are in wonderment. And what about his miracles? These miracles being performed by his hands. When they're questioning that, they are saying, there are only two sources that this man could be working this. Either, either by the power of God or by the power of Satan. That's what they're trying to arrive at. And obviously they are not giving God glory for that. Because they are opposed to him. So despite the very impressive words and deeds of Jesus, he still was a very ordinary person to them. And they had to make him look ordinary. And so they pushed on and asked another derogatory question. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? What were they saying by saying that, isn't this the carpenter? They were saying, he is a blue-collar worker like the rest of us. He is a common laborer. He is a janitor just like the rest of us. There's nothing more to him. We know his immediate family. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. These are ordinary people. And they could not have someone like him. And there's another thing here that we shouldn't miss about what they said. They said, isn't this the son of Mary? That was demeaning because in Jewish culture, you were not called by your mother's name. You were not called by the, your mother's name. Judges 11. Judges 11 verse 1 to 2. Now, Jephthah, the Giladite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. John eight forty one. Jesus said to the Jews, You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. You know what they're trying to say there? We were not born of fornication. Like you, Jesus. You, Jesus, you were born of fornication. We don't know your father. Where did you come from? John 9, 29. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Their words are calculated insults. They are suggesting that they knew something unusual about Jesus' birth, but they just could not understand what. So, since they could not explain Jesus, they had to explain him away 
they had to take offense at him, finding no reason to believe he was God's son. But in Mark 6, verse 4, Jesus responded to that rejection with a proverb that a prophet is not appreciated at home. Familiarity breeds contempt. Because of such persistent unbelief, Jesus could not do any more miracles there except to just lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. There was no limitation to Jesus' power. Jesus was working to demonstrate the importance of faith in him. Those miracles are useless if they end up not working faith in Christ. And only a few here had the faith to believe in Christ and those are the ones that he healed. And Jesus was amazed at the unbelief. Jesus is there doing impossible things amongst them. He is healing people that they know have been sick for a long time. And yet, they don't want anything to do with him. So his own people reject him in spite of all the miracles that he has performed among them. And what are we to learn from that? Because we have to learn these things were written for our learning. We are to learn that miracles by themselves do not form saving faith. Unless one is born again from above, they will not believe in Jesus. If the Lord were to come and perform a mighty work amongst the people, they will still find a way to explain the way. Or didn't you have a viral infection? What did the doctor say? It doesn't matter what the doctor said. It matters what Jesus did and said. And that understanding is important for us because in the current church environment, we have a lot of so-called preachers and faith healers and men of God who are drawing large crowds of people to themselves. And we know for some of us who listen to them, we know that they don't preach the gospel. Their goal is to draw as many people to themselves as possible that they can raise as much money as possible in the name of Christ without ever preaching Christ. If you have to have a pattern of a man of God, Apostle Paul was the pattern of the man of God. There's no man of God who almost is reaching $1 billion. There's nothing like that in the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel is inconvenient to those who want to raise money on the back of Christ. And therefore, it is not a priority for them because they know when you preach the gospel, it awakens the people to the truth of God. 
So they have to give them a constant diet of lies and half-truths about God and Christ just to keep them in. Without faith that leads to the person of Jesus, no one gets saved, whether they're healed or not. The majority of the people who are flocking to the faith healers are not doing so because they want to hear how they can make peace with God. It is not that they may be justified in Christ. That is the last thing on their mind. They don't know that they have a much bigger problem than their current circumstances. We have this teaching from the Lord himself. He said of the Jews, you are following me because you saw the loaves of bread. You are following me for the physical things that I am giving you. You are not following me for me. You are not following me for salvation. You are not following me because you realize I am your only hope of salvation. And this is a bad way of coming to Jesus. This is a bad way of coming to Jesus. So when the people had rejected Jesus, the Lord, we are told, went about the villages teaching. The Lord spent more time preaching and teaching than healing people. Teaching is important to the formation and growth of faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yet there are many people who will not sit down to hear proper teaching of who Christ is and why they need him. If you don't tell them about themselves, then you haven't preached. If you don't tell them some latest trick on how to improve something in their lives, whether at work, whether at home, they don't consider you a preacher or man of God. A man of God has to be, according to their understanding, like a wish doctor. You have to give them portions to help them with their issues of life. And they do this because they don't know their problem. They don't know that their biggest problem is that they are unrighteous. And that God is going to judge them. And they need the righteousness of God. Jesus' concern for the Jews then as today is that you believe in him more than anything else. That requirement has not changed since about 2,000 years ago. Jesus still demands that you believe in him as the son of God who is the savior of the world. And salvation is attached to what you say about Jesus. Salvation is attached to what you say about Jesus. And salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is not by faith. It's by faith alone. Because if we say salvation is by faith, it leaves you room to bring other things. It's faith plus. No. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
because that's what honors Christ for who he is and what he has done. So with that background, Apostle John says in verse 46 of John chapter 4, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. The royal official was most likely a Jew because Jesus made the statement that a prophet has no honor in his own country and he included him among those who sought signs in verse 48. His countrymen sought signs. And even Apostle Paul tells us that for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. So this is typical behavior of Jews. They seek a sign and Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. But no sign shall be given to it by the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. That's the only sign. So the royal official has made a trip from Capernaum, which is further north of Cana of Galilee, right by the coast of the Sea of Galilee. The royal official has a son who was sick, and we are told he was at the point of death. The man probably like the woman with the issue of blood, had exhausted all the local means and resources at his disposal to get help for his son. He has used his position. This is a royal official. He has used his position to no avail. His son could not be healed and he sought to track down Jesus to see if this miracle worker could pull some magic trick on his son. Because at this point, he doesn't know much about the person of Jesus. He has just heard that there's some guy who is doing some things down there in Galilee. So he seeks to meet with Jesus. And when people are desperate, they try and do everything and anything that promises relief. And here we see the evil nature of our sin. It causes us to rely on our means and resources. That looks like there's nothing bad with that. But not in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of God. Whatever relief and salvation 
our influence and resources may purchase for us, they will fail at the time when one is at the point of death. They will fail at the point of death. The resources that we have may be good to buy a car, fix things when they break, pay off the house and have some retirement money. For those who are well connected by political influence and power, but when death comes knocking at the door, those resources cannot deliver. And what we see here is that every man who have to, in one way or the other, experience their inability before they can apply themselves to who Jesus is. Sinners do not just get up in the morning and say, let me try to follow Jesus. This royal official work is not good for me. It's not satisfying me. I am going to self-actualize and try Jesus. No, Jesus is never the first option for anybody. Jesus is never first option for anybody. In the scriptures, Jesus is only given or is only sought as a last resort. When every attempt of self-salvation has failed. And unless one has lost confidence that their resources are not going to deliver them, they are not trekking 20 to 25 miles from Capernaum to Cana of Galilee to look for Jesus. That's how, how long it was. 20 to 25 miles on foot from Capernaum to Cana of Galilee. This is a desperate man. And unless the ship is battered by waves and is about to sink. No one cries out to the Lord and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that I am dying? As long as the ship is fine, nobody cares for Jesus. And it is important for us to understand theology better if we are to properly have a biblical view to our struggles and everything else. Our struggles come about that the Lord may show us that there's no salvation in all our ideas and programs. And that is why he frustrates our programs and ideas. He frustrates us by his grace that we may not be ensnared into self-salvation and build confidence in things that don't serve. He frustrates us that we may go out looking for him and his salvation. And by the way, it is him who brings about these trying situations. The circumstances of our lives are in his hands. Because if they were not in his hands, they will consume you to death and to hell. 
He ordained them all and he uses them to keep us from stumbling. He uses our circumstances, our trials, our difficulties in life to drive us to himself. So the royal official, having come to the end of himself on account of his son, runs to Jesus. If you still remember, the Syrophoenician woman also runs to Jesus when she came to the end of herself on account of her daughter who was demon-possessed. And the Lord used the sickness of her daughter to work faith in her and to display her as a model of saving faith. The woman with the issue of blood runs to Jesus after she had run out of options. People think the gospel is foolish only because they think they still have options. Once they run out of options, they'll cry out for help. And if they don't know anything about Jesus, they'll pick whatever promises relief. And for many, it shall be too late when they realize that they've run out of options and the ones that are left do not save. So we have to understand that our difficult circumstances are not the end of things. They are not the end of things. They are not accidents. But come from the sovereign hand of God that is working good in us and for us. So when the man heard that Jesus had come out of Judea to Galilee, he went out to find Jesus. He had. Jesus is in Samaria. This guy has had that Jesus has already left Judea. He is not aware of the two-day detour in Samaria. But message has already, word has already gone up to him right there in Capernaum. And he has already started trekking down south to meet with Jesus. So we have paparazzi who are constantly watching Jesus and following his every move. But let us not miss the point that John is teaching us. The Holy Spirit is careful to tell us that this man heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus. He heard the testimony of other people just as the Samaritans had heard the testimony from the Samaritan woman and believed and just as the woman with the issue of blood also heard about Jesus. They all had about Jesus. And God still works through our own testimonies of Jesus. The royal official sought to at least have some audience with the person of Jesus to see if Jesus could be of some help. He wanted to see if Jesus could help him with his burden. This is a burdened man. But 
the Samaritans have said this about Jesus. We are trying to connect the points. It is no longer because of what you say that we believe. For we have had for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So hearing is very important to salvation. Hearing about Jesus is important to salvation. It's hearing about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Because Jesus cannot be revealed without you knowing that you're a sinner. You can't hear about Jesus unless your desperate condition has been revealed. So the man has heard about Jesus. This is not just hearing about just the name of Jesus. There's something more about Jesus that is being implied by this statement. So the Samaritans heard about Jesus. Not that there was a Jew in the world, but there was a special man, this prophet who is greater than Jacob. This one who may be the Christ. This is what is attracting the attention of the Samaritans. This is what they are hearing about Jesus. So it's not just like a physical hearing, but a spiritual hearing of the person and what Christ is promising his people. So because he heard about Jesus, he treks down 20 to 25 miles that he may see Jesus in person and tell him about his situation. And so the man was imploring Jesus to come and heal his son just as the Syrophoenician woman pressed Jesus to come and heal her daughter in Mark 7, 27 to 30. And I like the conversation that Jesus had with the Syrophoenician woman because it shares a lot with this story. And we're going to develop them together that we may see what the Lord is teaching in both stories. So the Syrophoenician woman had a daughter that was demon-possessed. And she comes and she bugs Jesus. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And of the royal official, this is what we are told. We are bringing the stories together. The royal official, John 4, 47 to 50, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him. You see that? He was imploring Jesus. The Syrophoenician woman 
was imploring Jesus for her daughter and this man for his son to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So Jesus does not say a positive statement towards him. That's negative. He's saying, no, there's something wrong with you. And with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus says, you're a dog. I don't want to deal with you. I wasn't sent for you. So the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. So what do we see? Both the royal official and the Syrophoenician woman are at the end of themselves on account of their children. On account of someone dear to them. They both heard about Jesus and determined to get to him and present him with their respective problems. But Jesus at first seems not to be interested. He seems not to be very cooperative. He seems to be reluctant to help because he intends to teach them and others about the nature of faith and salvation. This is not about healing. He at first denies the request of the woman and calls her a dog. But she persisted. And her persistence paid off. And Jesus is teaching about the nature of true faith because he praised the kind of faith. And Jesus was telling us something about the true nature of serving faith. He's saying, true faith has to be tested. True faith has to be tested. And it has to be tested only by a difficult circumstance. By sickness. By death. By loss of employment. And we know this also because we do it in our everyday lives. Fireproof or fire-resistant materials are tested only by putting them in the fire. Waterproof materials are tested only by putting them first in water. And you don't wear a bulletproof vest without ever testing it first. Bulletproof vests have to be tested before one can wear them as to be protected by them. And if it's true for these things, true faith has to be tested by trials and crosses. But true faith persists and perseveres in the face of trials and testing. And it keeps begging and it keeps bugging. It keeps pressing on Jesus. And it won't take a no for an answer from Jesus. That is, true faith will continue to look at Jesus, whatever the circumstance. And as Apostle Peter said, 
Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So in spite of the circumstances, you have to keep pressing at Jesus. You have to keep bugging Jesus. But when faith has been tested, it brings confidence in the faithfulness of God because that's what God is teaching you. God is teaching you to trust in him. But you can't trust in God if you are self-reliant in everything. God has to show you. He has to come and knock some things down. Move some things around. Just so that he destabilizes your confidence in yourself. And you can always tell when someone is speaking foolishly because God has not yet taken them through the furnace to test them. They have too much confidence in themselves. They talk too much about their invincibility. They talk too much about how this and that can never happen to them. Or that they will never do this or do that. That they will never get in debt. That they will never, whatever it is, that they think they can never do. They can only talk like that because God has not yet put them into the fire. If you belong to Christ, you can't avoid the furnace. You have to be refined one way or the other. And as we know, as someone has said, God only has one sinless son, but he has none whose faith doesn't get tested by affliction. All the children of God who have to go through some kind of furnace. So the royal officer finds himself in a furnace. He finds himself in an unusual situation. Very desperate for help. And to make matters worse, when he meets the Lord, he is rightly accused by the Lord for seeking signs for him to believe. Even though this was a more blanket statement on the Jews who did not believe in him. You see, Jesus is not moved much by the plight of the people as he is moved by faith. Because if salvation was about poverty, God would just save everybody. There's more to God that people don't understand. And unless we actually go deep in the Bible, we always carry superficial understanding of who God is. God is moved by faith because faith alone is what honors him. And God is in the business of being honored. But the royal official goes past what Jesus said and told Jesus his problem. And said, Sir, come before my son dies. The royal official does not have time for theological arguments with Jesus, unlike Sister Sarah Samaritan. He just wants mercy. Do you see the contrast between this officer and Sister Samaritan? This man 
is so desperate that he just wants mercy from Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, have mercy on my son. He is dying. Have mercy on me and mercy on my son. Because if Jesus does not have mercy on this man, his son is not getting healed. Jesus, have mercy on my son who is dying. Come, Jesus. My pants are on fire. My situation is about to explode in my hands. But Jesus does not need to go there. Jesus does not need to go there and does not answer the request to come to the man's house. Jesus is more than a carpenter after all. He doesn't need to go to this man's house. What Jesus wants is for this man to come to Jesus. That's the point. Jesus wants this man to realize that his situation can only be helped if he comes to Jesus. Jesus wanted to teach him and ourselves that there's no salvation for anyone unless they believe in him. The issue is not healing. The issue is salvation. Because salvation is greater healing than being able to walk again. And so Jesus commands him and says, Go, your son lives. And the official gets back on the road, expecting that his son had been healed. But not without doubt though. Because if you have to put yourself in the shoes of this man, he has walked 20-something miles. He hasn't seen his son. So for the many hours that he has to walk, he is anxious about the whole situation. He has some doubts. Is this man really telling the truth? Has my son been healed? Or am I going to be greeted to the news of the death of my son? But his doubting does not change anything. Your doubting does not change anything about salvation. Because ultimately, it is the word of Jesus that stands. And surely, when the man gets home, what did he find? His son was well. And surely, when you get to the other end, what are you going to find? You're going to find that Jesus has actually saved you. In spite of your doubts. In spite of your misgivings. So, let us draw some more understanding from this story and the Syrophoenician woman. Both their stories involved children who were not with the parents at the time that the parents met with Jesus. The ones who were sick were not present with those who sought help for them. So we have to ask some questions. How did Jesus know which child was sick and where the child was? How did Jesus know that this child was in Capernaum? Obviously, there were a lot of other children who were sick in Capernaum. Right? And in Phoenicia, 
there had to be some other kid who had a demon in Phoenicia too. And we have to ask the question, how did Jesus know which one to heal and how did the healing power get to them? That tells us more about the person of Jesus. Jesus is not just a carpenter. It tells us that Jesus is more than man. Jesus is God. And he knows all things. And he has all the power. And from this we can also learn about the theology of prayer and healing. This tells us that Jesus is not limited by space or time or power if he determines to heal someone. And the issue is not even just healing. The issue is if he is determined to save you. Jesus is not limited. He knows exactly where you are. He knows. And at the appointed hour of your salvation, Jesus is going to send the summons that go and save Guido. He is one of mine. Jesus is able and willing to heal someone that you pray for no matter where they are. But faith remains an important piece of this process. You do not need anybody to get you a prayer show or anointing oil. You don't need anybody to get some concrete from Israel and say, this is the concrete block on which Jesus walked. Like what is happening? And people are paying money for these things. There's no power of healing in Water. Water is just hydrogen and oxygen. There's no healing in oil. Like these fake snake oil salesmen who call themselves preachers are selling to the people. Healing, the power of God is not on sale. We have to get that right. The power of God is not on sale. The Holy Spirit is not on sale. If God has to give you something, it's always given for free. Because if you pay something, you're thinking, oh, if I did not have the 1000 I surely would have died. No, $1,000 does not buy you life. Christ is the one who gives life. It is Jesus alone who heals. And he does not need anybody to help him. And he can heal anyone, anytime, and anywhere. So faith is very, very, very important. We can pray for anybody, wherever in the world. And if the Lord so determines to honor himself through your prayer, that person will be healed. Whichever way God ends up healing them. If you go to the hospital, you are healed by Jesus. The doctors think they are the ones who are healing. No, they are not healing you. It's Jesus who is using them as secondary means to accomplish his work. But when we talk about healing in the context of those who belong to the household of Christ, we have to talk about faith. Because Faith comes 
from God. And faith glorifies God alone. True faith keeps looking to Jesus alone for salvation from every situation. But it is important because when you hear a lot of the so-called faith healers, if they try to heal someone and the person doesn't get healed, what they always do is they accuse the person for not having enough faith. Or they'll say, or you have some unconfessed sin. That's why God is not honoring your faith. Or you did not tithe enough. There's something that you are doing that's getting in the way of God healing you. But we cannot measure faith with a thermometer like we do temperature. The Lord honors faith that is as small as the master said. You can't even what matters with faith is not that you feel your faith. Faith is not an emotion. What matters about faith is that God sees it. So the issue of faith is not quantity, but the object to which it looks for hope. Right? If you have faith in man, if you have faith in government, you get what man and the government can give. If you have faith in Jesus, you get what Jesus gives. Life, forgiveness of sins, and righteousness. So we have to put healing in the proper context. Healing of a person is not the end of Christ. Healing is for the purpose, for those who actually get healed, is that they may trust in Christ, that they may know who Christ is, that they may believe in Christ and be saved. And we know that Jesus does not heal all, even those who have the strongest faith. We have people over the years, strong Christian brothers and sisters, who had very debilitating health situations, and yet God did not heal them. Why? Because the issue is not about physical healing. The issue is about spiritual salvation. That's the healing that you desperately need because this body, even if it gets healed, it still has to go into the ground one way or the other. But Jesus warned us and said, you have to fear he who is able to destroy both the body and the soul. So the body can be destroyed, but your soul will be saved in Christ. We also have to acknowledge that God is sovereign. So he heals as he sees fit and by the means that he wants. And if we have a situation that God has not removed, it's because the Lord is not yet done with what he sent it for. We're going to get some more understanding shortly. What are we to draw from this story? The story of the royal son, the royal official, and his son. 
I'm sure the son was also a royal son. We are to draw that God and Jesus are impressed by faith alone and nothing else. The faith that impresses Jesus is an enduring and persistent faith in the face of adversity. The faith that Jesus gives is an enduring and persisting faith because he is the author and perfecter of it. Without adversity, your faith is not tested and is not purified. You do not feel faith, as I said, as a positive emotion, as a positive emotional feeling. Like, okay, today I feel myself just overflowing with faith. The true nature of faith begins this way. It comes first as resignation from self-hope and self-salvation. It comes as a persistent attitude of trust, of enduring trust, of hopeful perseverance that God or Jesus alone directly or indirectly through secondary means is able to deliver you from the circumstances that you find yourself in. So you don't praise and worship the secondary means. You don't worship the so-called men of God, but Jesus who works through the means. The circumstances that you have may go away quickly, or they may linger, like what happened with the woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years, she has been bleeding, and Jesus knows about it. Otherwise, how would we know that she had been bleeding for 12 years unless the Holy Spirit told us that? So the circumstances may go away quickly or God may keep them for a while as he did with Apostle Paul with the messenger of Satan that the Apostle implored the Lord three times to remove it. But the Lord said, 2 Corinthians 12, 6-10, For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. A lot of what is being taught in a lot of the so-called church, nonsense teaching, 
is to say, if you have faith in Christ, none of these things happens to you. No more weaknesses for you, Brother Robert. No more insults. No more distresses. No more persecutions. No more difficulties. And yet Apostle Paul says that is actually the condition that you have to find yourself if you're in Christ. That is the normal situation for one who is in Christ. So instead of someone telling you and praising the Lord, they are actually causing you to start doubting your own salvation. Saying, oh, Brother Robert, I thought you believed in Christ. Why are things breaking down at your house? The Apostle Paul was given a difficult circumstance that God did not deliver him from, that he may keep him from exalting himself. We know who Apostle Paul was. He was an exalted man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was the most beloved of the sons of Jacob. So he's saying, I come from good breed. And the Lord says, no, I am going to put you down so that you may not boast in yourself. Because when it comes to Christ, boasting is foolishness. And he says, I refrain from boasting so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. He's saying he doesn't want anybody to have a false evaluation of him. If there's anything good about Apostle Paul, he says, credit that to the grace of God that is working in me. So he implored the Lord three times to remove the messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said to him, No, you have not enough faith, Paul. No, you did not pay your tithes. The Lord did not say that. He said, Your suffering and difficult circumstances are so that you can learn to depend on the sufficiency of grace. For the power of the Lord is perfected in weakness. The power of the Lord is perfected when you have come to the end of yourself. In your own weakness. And we have to draw that the messenger of Satan was sent by God and not the devil. As many people try to think. Apostle Paul is very clear to say this came from God. A messenger of Satan was sent me by God and I asked the Lord Jesus about it and he said, no, that's fine. I'm not removing him. That's sovereignty. God was using the messenger of Satan to empty Apostle Paul. God, if you remember, does not fill a vessel that has things in it already. He has to empty it. Grace only works in an empty vessel. And God will see to it that he empties your vessel and mine. And we know that this teaching is hard to our flesh when we've been taught that God is love. And because God is love, Everything is supposed to be okay. 
No more suffering. Wrinkle free Christianity. We have to understand this is how the God of the Bible works. Or else we'll be drawn into much foolishness. We see the obsession that the people, especially the Pentecostals, have with the devil. The reason why Pentecostals are busy rebuking the devil left, right, and center is because they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know that the devil is a created creature. He is a creature. God alone rules. The devil is an instrument in God's hands who can only do what God permits him to do. We see that with the book of Job. The devil is under very strict instructions on what he could do or not do to Job. The devil comes to Jesus and he asks for permission to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, Peter, I had a conversation with the devil. And he inquired if he could sift you like wheat. Why did the devil go to Jesus to ask permission? Why didn't he go and ask Herod for permission? He goes to Jesus because the devil knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is God. And without Jesus giving him permission, he can't do anything to Peter. That's the God of the Bible. So we don't spend time rebuking this devil and that devil. We spend time talking about Jesus. So the messenger of Satan was just being used as a secondary instrument to work out a spiritual good in the life of Paul. It had boundaries as to what it could do to Paul and how much pain and discomfort it could cause and where in his body. He is sovereign over where the devil actually goes and touches. Just as we know about Job. And so, the story of the Syrophoenician woman and the royal official and their desperate circumstances teach us that the Lord is sovereign over all our trying circumstances. And because we belong to him, he ultimately will deliver us from them when their work has been accomplished. And we know they are sent to us to perfect faith and to humble us. And once the royal official had been humbled, and once faith had been formed in him, we hear from Apostle John, we are finishing. Verse 51, John 4. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed. You see the end of that? And he himself believed and his whole household. That was the point. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The royal official was a rich and powerful guy something that you may not have noticed. He was met by his slaves. He had slaves in his household. 
he was a slave master. But the Lord sought to show him too that he was not above the bondage of his slaves. His slaves were under bondage to him and the Lord gave him also something that put him under bondage. The sickness of his son. But we are told that when he came back to his house, he found his son well. His son was well. And his son had been made well at the very time that Jesus had spoken. When Jesus had spoken and said, your son is well. Just imagine the power of Jesus. How did he do that? That's the only thing he said. Go home, your son is well. That has to tell you more about Jesus. People say, oh, Jesus never said he was God, but he was always doing things that tell you that he is God. The slaves, don't miss this, the slaves and the whole household believed in Jesus even though they had not seen him. They believed in Jesus even though they had not seen him. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. But what is it that the Holy Spirit is teaching us so far as we close this and as we close this chapter? This story is not disconnected from everything else that we have taught. Jesus at Cana of Galilee turned water into wine. The beginning of a new creation. In John chapter 3, he taught of a new birth. In John chapter 4, the need of a living water. What is that saying? Without the new creation, without the new birth, without the living water, those who are born in darkness are at the point of death. Without the new birth, those who are born in the wilderness, born in darkness, if they don't get the living water, they are at the point of death. And if Jesus does not show up to heal them and to give them the water from above and to give them the life from above, they are dying. And praise the Lord Jesus shows up just in time to give the Samaritan woman living water so that she would not thirst anymore and die. Because when you get thirsty, you just don't get thirsty. You will die of dehydration, spiritual dehydration. And Jesus shows up on time to heal the royal official's son who was at the point of death. So the royal official's son is the summary of what happens when all these things, if these other things do not happen. If Jesus does not give you a new birth like Nicodemus and he's living water like Sister Samaritan, you are at the point of death like the royal official's son and you will die in your sins. But if you are in him, the Lord says, the situation that is about to consume you is just a furnace that is in my hands. This sickness shall not lead to death, but to the glory of God. 
it shall not consume you as to destroy you. Though your situation puts you at the point of death, that is helplessness. Jesus says, Go, your son lives. And he alone has words of eternal life. It's only Jesus who can say to you, Go, your son lives. And the Lord says to each and every one of his people who are in distress, Go, your son lives. In the time of desperation, he says, Trust my word and go, because your situation was not meant to destroy you, but to work and perfect faith and to show you that Jesus Christ is your only hope Indeed, he is the savior of the world. And I wanted to speak to Sister Becca and Brother Robert because they had problems with Ezra. And we know that Ezra is well and fine in spite of their worries and many sleepless nights. Why? Is there anything that they actually did? Nothing. They only worried. But what happened? The one who gave him to them said, Go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. It's not about you and Becca. It's about his faithfulness. It's not about your doubts. Whatever he has said, that's what he's going to accomplish. And we are seeing it. And the faith that pleases God was worked in both of them. They have become stronger Christians since that time. And that's how God works. That is how the God of the Bible works. He just doesn't come and give you a hug. He'll give you a hug after he has accomplished his work at Mount Zion. Praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again. Lord, we worship you and we praise you and glorify you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom we sent that we may believe in him, that we may live, that we may have a new birth in him, that we may get our thirst quenched, by his living water, that we may be resurrected from this death that was about to overtake us. Our Lord, we praise you. We honor you for your grace and your mercy towards us. I pray, Lord, that you would increase your word in the hearts of your people, expand it, that they may hear what it is that the Spirit is teaching, that men have no hope outside Christ. There's no hope in what men do for themselves. Whether in government or whatever other institution, what other religion that man may think of. Unless it's Jesus and him crucified, there's no hope for man. And Lord, we thank you, praise you for this wonderful day. We pray for your people, all who are called of Christ, who are of the household of Christ. Lord, may you protect them, 
May you sanctify them and keep them and bring them to yourself for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.